a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romas with you. Today we are going to be talking about leadership and EDI or equity, diversity, inclusion, implementation within organizations. For that, I have Enyina Okir on the podcast, or E for short. Uh, he is the Chief Operations Officer in the Office of the Chief for the Edmonton Police Service. He oversees the leadership, vision, and strategic direction of the corporate communications, the value and impact divisions, and the partnership and stakeholder development branch. The focus of his work includes bolstering public relations and upholding organizational transparency. Both he and his wife, Michelle O'Kear, were both named top 40 under 40 by Edify Magazine in 2021. I'm going to ask what happened in 2022 <laughs> when we get into it. Uh, but he also recently gave a TED Talk in Calgary, which I'll post a link to as well once we get this up, because uh, I recommend people go and check that out. But uh, welcome, E. Hey, thank you for having me, bro. <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, yes, this is E's real voice. I've turned the bass off. The treble's all the way up. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, one thing I did want to ask, actually, just right off the top. Uh, so you got named top 40 under 40. What, uh, what does that kind of entail? Like when you, when you get told you're, you're getting this, uh, what happens? Yeah, it, 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 it's a little surreal. So you end up getting, uh, they notify you that you're one of the top 40 uh, as for Edify Magazine. So I found out like in the morning and I knew my wife was nominated. I figured she was going to win because I'll be honest, she's the actual talent in the family. <laughs> so when I found out, I'm like, oh, there's no way they'll do both of us. So I was like, hey, by the way, I won this thing. She's like, very happy for me. And then an hour later, she's like, hey, they called me. I won it too. I'm like, oh, this is surprising because... Honestly, we had, it was in 2021, we moved here in 2019. Mm -hmm. So I was still figuring out even just neighborhoods within the city of Edmonton, let alone expecting anything like that. But it was very humbling. Um, you get the call, then they, someone will interview you to kind of find out a little more about your story. And then they put it within the Edify magazine. And then what you end up doing is they have a banquet uh, at the end of the year that you go there and you kind of bring some guests, but you see the other top 40. And mm -hmm. it ends up being a really cool um, group of Edmontonians, um, pretty young, that have some outsized impact on the city. And yeah. the founding is a lot of them are still giving back to their community. And I think that's just really cool to see it highlight. That's very cool. And do you uh do you get a vacation or anything out of it? Uh no, no, no <laughs> vacation. Um we're putting all the hard work in. <laughs> yeah, you just continue to put the hard work in and you'd be surprised about the the reach of the magazine. So sometimes you'll just have people looking at you funny mm. and like I, I get that a little bit, but it's like, okay, but were you in this I'm like, oh, okay, you you actually you read that. So yeah. Um, but there's no there's no vacation, there's no trip. There is just uh, that feeling of intrinsic motivation being kind of satisfied in terms of kind of people recognize work that you put. Yeah, totally. And, and you I mean you get some amazing connections in there too, right? So you just keep it going. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll get into your story. Uh, and I know you 
talked a little bit about this in your TED talk, uh, but can you start at the beginning? Just tell us about you, where you're from, and how you got to where you are now. For sure, I'll give kind of a brief version. But uh, so I was born in Nigeria um, with uh, my mother, my sister, my father. He came to Canada to finish his, uh, his PhD. And we were in Nigeria for a while. So when we first immigrated, we immigrated to Guelph, Ontario. This would have been back in the 90s. And that was uh, a real shift for me because I think I've referenced in other places when you're in a country like Nigeria, you differentiate yourself by tribe, which is kind of language spoken uh, religion. But when everyone is black, you don't really think about the world doesn't actually change. You know what I mean? And then coming to Canada, there was a, it was kind of a culture shock and a shell shock really uh, for me and my family. But it was, and I'm so grateful that we did make that move, um, an incredible kind of opportunity to grow. Like most of, almost all of my family is still back home in Nigeria. So it was just our nuclear family that did come. So I went through, um, did elementary school in Ontario, then moved out to Saskatchewan for high school and university. Um, I was a CIS university track athlete about 80 pounds ago. Um, and I took uh, political science actually was my major in university, which led me to working at the legislature. So I started at the legislature fresh out of university thinking, you know, you know everything and you're thinking about all these theories of things and then real life kind of punches you in the face. So yeah. people have very different ideas regardless of what uh, the academic theory may be. Um, application of these things and actually working with uh, community members, working with legislature legislators is very different. But I was able to kind of navigate up my career um, to be the director of research for the government of caucus, sorry, the government caucus office, which is all the elected officials who aren't cabinet ministers, they in the uh, office. And from there, I went to be a chief of staff to the Minister of Corrections and Policing. And that's actually where my first real intersection with uh, policing was through kind of the government lens. Okay. I was the minister at the time, was a former police officer. And the deputy minister that I started working with was a then... Um, just retired police chief, Dale McPhee. Mm -hmm. Just a little side story. I don't think this part really quick. Yeah. Our first interaction was not good. So <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. There, we had, uh, we had some differences of opinions on a few things, but, uh, eventually, uh, there was a day that something went wrong and I'm like, okay, well, my career is over. And I'm like, you know what? If, uh, <laughs> If it's going to go down, I might as well go down to the blaze of glory. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go slug it out with this guy. And I didn't do my research. I didn't know he led the league and like penalty minutes in the WHL. So I thought I was going to get a fair one on an old man. And uh, it was not like that. So we had, <laughs> <laughs> we had a very spirited and good conversation about actually what we're trying to do, what problems we're trying to solve from the kind of the elected side versus the kind of the ministry side. And that really opened my eyes to kind of a lot of um, a lot of the different ways that uh, policing intersects with the human services and affects the community. But while I was doing that, you still only see policing at a very high level. Like I would interact with either retired police officers or retired police chiefs that would hold senior executive positions. So yeah. you're looking at it too, through one very particular lens. 
So I did that, had a few more portfolios within the government of Saskatchewan, and then in 2019, uh, Chief McPhee was uh, selected to be the chief for the Edmonton Police Service and um, wanted to bring a lot of the work that we were doing for the government of Saskatchewan, especially with the blending of public health, law enforcement, a uh, real strong focus on community. How do we bring that to Edmonton at a very local level? So that's that was really at a high, high level, my journey to uh, the city of Edmonton working for EPS. Awesome. Well, and you know what? I, I really like a bunch of the themes that you pick up in there where you're talking about the different perspectives, uh, the different dynamic between you and the chief, because I think that, well, even if we talk about front lines today, they only see it through one lens as well, right? So how do we make that connection between the leadership, the executive level, and those frontline people? So um, yeah, we'll definitely get into all that here. Is, is there anything that's kind of surprised you the most about being in this law enforcement world? Yeah, I think I would say two things. How much the folks who do this actually care about the community and how seriously they take it. Uh, like I was... I was ignorant to that. Like you would meet, you know, okay. chiefs that you know, yeah, they were successful in kind of what they were doing as executives and they would have come up through the ranks, but you don't get kind of that critical mass of meeting a whole lot of kind of getting that frontline perspective. So upon coming here, I was extremely pleasantly surprised and actually just quite grateful in terms of how seriously people took their jobs, how seriously like the deep connections that they end up having with mm. their, whether it be the uh, folks that uh, like say SROs and someone was an SRO 10 years ago. And they remember a lot of the students that they play basketball with, they had connections with uh, whether it be through domestic violence and like just the deep core relationships that uh, are built through this and there's not very many like it that you get you see people who deal with folks at their worst moment yeah uh, whether it be you're a victim or you're an offender and the fact that something positive can build from that is a very it's i i just don't think that gets celebrated and talked about enough and talked about in times where things are good not as a rebuttal to um, a lot of the criticism policing has received mm, okay um, at least through my year so being more active and speaking about those things and i think that's a culture shift that needs to happen um in terms of it's not that you're spending all the time tooting your own horn but i, th I think this profession would be served by society really knowing what goes into it, the good, bad, and ugly. And I think that's some of the work that you're doing in terms of your podcast, in terms of getting stories out there so that there are to challenge some of the dominant perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, while even doing this, like you're saying, uh, it's, it's been different, <laughs> I guess, to say the least. Um, you, it, it's in, an interesting world when you have to kind of walk a bunch of different lines and I mean, you know, being at your level, I know you have the, the greater organization to kind of look out for, but you as a person also want to say your piece, right? And sometimes that might conflict with what the organization needs to do. So I think it's a, it's a real battle trying to figure out like, how do I say this mm -hmm. and kind of stay true to myself? Now get into kind of like the leadership stuff when we talk about that. How do I say something? while remaining true to myself or, you know, my beliefs, but while also supporting the organization and, you know, not walking us into a bunch of lawsuits or whatever, or complaints, yeah. <laughs> whatever we might get. Yeah. <laughs> so what, um, 
at your level, uh, what would be like, you know, what what is one of the biggest, maybe I, I don't want to say disappointments, but one of the biggest dislikes of what you have to do on the day to day. So you're, you're heavily involved in communications, but is there anything that, you know, maybe you got there and you're like, wow, this is probably the worst part of this job. Um, I would say, and I'll probably take it back to even uh, the C- when I was overseeing CSWB, I think some of the tougher parts was actually the deluge or the, the amount of meetings that we had when it came through um, like the perpetual council meetings. Okay. There was a lot of time. There was a lot of time spent in front of kind of elected officials that I think it was important and that's what the service needed at the time, uh, communicating where we're going, where we're going as a service, the changes that we're making or the changes that we aren't making because we believe this is proper police work. But some of that time, especially with me being so new to the service, I would have loved to have spent that time instead really getting to know more people and more parts of the service. Mm. So there is this, you come in at say my level as a, an executive, uh, but you haven't come up through the ranks in the particular organization. A lot of my colleagues have the benefit of I've worked in all of these sections or I know some of these people, but the ability to kind of relationship build, um, you it kind of gets hamstrung when, well, you're dealing with an existential crisis like we were with uh, uh, policing and a lot of the defund movement over the last few years. So some of the things, like just the sheer corporate things that are required to do, I know that's my job and that's why I, I get paid. But it does come at a sacrifice of it's taken, I'll be getting into year five in April, and we're yeah. all getting to start having these conversations now because you were, you were just so deep in a bunker dealing with that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and, you, and that's the thing that a lot of people say to us, even on the street, you know, you're paid to get yelled at or paid to get uh, punched or something. It's like, you know what? I, I didn't sign up for that specifically. <laughs> I get that's going to be a part of the job at some point. Mm-hmm. However, you know, if I didn't spend my time doing these things, uh, I could be doing so much better out there, right? So I get what you're saying. It's just a matter of time allocation where you can make uh, uh, some impact. Um, so overall, though, it's been going good, I guess. You've been here five years now? Yeah, yeah. five years. Well, it'll be April 2024. It'll be five years. So it's, yeah, three, uh, four and three quarters. Is there any particular areas of policing that that you haven't been yet that maybe are of interest to you or that you really maybe aspire to go go toward so for the last three years i was in uh, community safety and well-being and believe it that that bureau uh, as it was then had quite a wide uh, gamut that i was able to see so from the serious crimes branch to the uh, social navigation branch Kind of very different, but some of the core principles are still the same in terms of working with different community partners, um, investigations of domestic violence or sexual assault. Um, so I've gotten to see a lot of kind of that partnership and stakeholder um, like policing. I think just some things that are pure interest, it doesn't mean I want to go anywhere near them. I just think some of these things look cool. Would be yeah. Some of the things in your world, in uh, DC La Force's bureau, um, getting to see a lot more of the work in uh, training as well, recruit training. Um, and especially with how competitive that's going to be over these next few years with 
every kind of first responder front front line facing organization from teaching to EMS to um, uh, policing is struggling to recruit. So making sure we're there and seeing what we're doing to kind of build that next generation. That is of interest to me, but that doesn't mean I necessarily want to go there. But I think I'm hoping now that we've come to a close uh, or a reprieve with a lot of the funding formula discussions and the, the politics of policing is dying down a little. That'll give me an opportunity to kind of dig into these other areas and really just see like what the great folks that we do have there are doing just for my own personal uh, development and learning more because the more I know and the more actually see the better i'm able to communicate when i do have to go in front of whether it be the police commission or whether it be council or the province etc that makes me better at my job so those are my kind of my selfish interests yeah well i would say even when it dies down though i mean you know the policing world now from being uh in your position i mean it it only dies down for so long so you you're gonna have to be fast and furious when you're out there learning (laughs) bro there's been no break yeah there's been no break like i was just a couple of weeks ago uh my wife and i and our family on vacation in uh, kananaskis and i ran into a former colleague he's a deputy minister of corrections and policing in sask and the first thing he said when he saw me he's like hey how are you guys doing in edmonton like you guys have had no break i'm like yeah there's been no off season yeah <laughs> it, from one thing to the other and i think it speaks to the kind of collective resiliency of the organization even when it feels hard or it can feel bitter there has been a lot that's happened in a very compressed time period and the fact that folks you know still show up for the most part do their job do it to the best of their ability really care about their files mm-hmm. um that 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 speaks to kind of the character of the people that we do hire but yeah it has been a gauntlet <laughs> yeah well, and so you're, um, from your point of view, though, it's kind of died down. Is it still, um, is there still a lot of talk about defunding or is there a lot of talk about any other issues that police have had over the years lately? Like, is there one specific one that's still around? Well, I think the appetite and tolerance for def- the defund conversation has uh, waned. I, I, I think it's, it's. I'm thinking that as a society, we're going to be past that. Now, that doesn't mean the police accountability discussion isn't going to go away, and nor should it ever. But um, I, I think that part has passed. Where we are right now is really what we are going to do as a society when it comes to social disorder. Yeah. What are we going to when it comes to the encampments, when it comes to the open air drug use um, that uh, has really taken over a lot of kind of Western Canada, Western parts of the North America, and how do we address these things? Like we know that I mean, you were at the uh, Safer Cities Conference, yep. um, or Universities Conference, and you see that of all major cities, Edmonton leads the nation with kind of meth in the wastewater. That is very dangerous, not only for the individuals who are using the meth, but for our regular citizens and the police officers who are going to be, who are tasked to kind of interdicting and interacting uh, with that. So we are still kind of right now, I think there's a larger societal discussion of what it is that we're going to tolerate and then what, how we're going to be able to address some of these issues. There's different provinces, different municipalities that have been going in multiple directions. But I think as a city here in Edmonton, that's going to be the, the really hot button issue over these next few years. Mm-hmm. How do we address the disorder? And then on top of that, how do we 
bringing accountability back within the criminal justice system so that we're not going through a revolving door. That That's something we all have to own from policing to the judiciary through, through the prosecutions, et cetera. We all have to own that. But I think Edmontonians and citizens are going to be focusing on that. Yeah, and you know what? That conference, I found it very valuable, uh, mainly for the fact that you had so many people from across the U.S., across Canada. You have people from Phoenix, uh, San Francisco, yep. there was Dallas. And then we had across, like you know, Toronto and, and Vancouver's big cities here, and just kind of there's a couple things I guess you can kind of take comfort in knowing that other people are going through the same thing. Sometimes worse, and yeah, and sometimes worse. Um, so we can look at those people though, and, or, and those cities and go, yeah, maybe, you know, we're doing the same thing they are like, maybe we should stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but it also gave you a lot of different ideas for how to tackle these things. Kind of like you saying, you know, there's so many people going in, in different directions. Who's doing what, you know, the thing that's working or at least looks like it's working and like, let's not be afraid to change. Let's kind of try something different. So, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a really good conference for for those reasons. It's good. Maybe one thing uh, I'll kind of pick up on there uh, is the leadership aspect. So we need people like, you know, you're in an area with big personalities and big ideas. And like you're saying, you see things from like a very high level perspective. So w- on your end of things, how do you find or what type of leadership do you think you need to uh, maybe implement some of these ideas because you get it from all sides. I guess you get, you know, you battle in the defund thing. So you got to argue with the city about stuff of the provincial interests. You've got all the special interest groups. So how do you uh, yourself, you know, kind of stay the course and kind of the things I was saying previously, how do you kind of stay true to yourself and guide the organization in a in the right direction or what you see as the right direction no I, I think that's a very good and big question so i think i'll try to break it down into two parts um the first thing is like listening so for me i have a very particular lens and i think it speaks to the diversity conversation that you and i i'm hoping that we really get into here yeah but i have a very particular lens and experience when it comes to uh leading i guess large whether it be organizations or trying to achieve kind of big goals so for me is knowing that it's going to be a bit of a marathon and there are you have to have the emotional and mental endurance and stamina to be able to continue to do this when not only do the people that you're tasked with leading they may not buy in at first yeah but the folks that are on the other side of you as well um, that may have a different opinion or do not want to see it succeed because there's some people who just do not want to see it uh, succeed like even speaking about kind of getting into community safety and well-being and which is something that the service was doing before but like i think we took it to the next level over these last few years there were folks who did not want to see that like police abolitionists because they were saying that this was the antidote to the defund movement, that the police would just start working with the social agencies. And that was the antithesis of what they wanted because what they wanted was abolition and yeah. strike it down. So you you have to, I think, be able to listen to 
feedback, um, make sure that we can connect with a, the people that we task with doing these things. So like, I'm always aware of writing a check that someone else has to cash because I hate when I would hate when people for me, but if you don't have that North star and kind of what that end game is going to be, it, it will, it'll burn you out. So there is a story about, it was, a, I think it was a POW in, um, in Vietnam that was captured and there was a few American POWs captured and a lot of them were thinking, okay, by Christmas we'll get out, by Easter we'll get out. And they eventually, they, they, they broke down. And this gentleman, and I'll, I'll get it, I'll get the name, but this gentleman was very, very aware of his current situation. So he's grounded in reality, but never lost hope that he's going to get to this destination. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very principle that I try to kind of live and lead by, that you can be ruthlessly aware of what's in front of you, that, hey, this is very hard, or right now we might not have buy-in here. We're seeing pockets of success here, and you can understand what this is, but be very firm on getting to that destination point. And I think you can, if you have a little wiggle room to be able to actually get in different ideas or perhaps, hey, if we're both trying to get here, why don't we try it this way? Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm flexible there, but if we know we're just trying to get to, and for me, the a goal, a goal end goal of a police services that focus on balance and support and enforcement, that we need to be able to hold people accountable, but we also have to hold ourselves accountable. That's kind of my focus. But I, and I'll say, because I think you have a follow-up question, I also think about things about degrees of dissatisfaction. And uh, Mitch Flamin said that when we were working together, he's like, you know what, if sometimes if both sides are kind of mad at you that they haven't gotten everything that they wanted, you're probably doing a good enough job. <laughs> so I think about it in that sense as well. Yeah, well, you know what, and, I, I like the part where you're talking about, you know, you got to be open to feedback and kind of like you're saying your first meeting with the chief, you probably didn't think you'd be here, at least not in that moment. You didn't think you'd be here working with him. So, <laughs> you know, you got to be open to people that criticize or critique and take that uh, critically and, and listen. Um, I, and I've said this on the here before with a lot of people in these leadership discussions, you know, uh, and I think this is a good lesson for politics nowadays anyways. You know, we might disagree on how we're getting to the end goal, but we're all trying to get to this point. If you think I should put, you know, 70 cents of every dollar into whatever the issue is, and the other person thinks it's 30 cents, it's like, okay, maybe we'll find the middle ground somewhere, right? Like, we don't have to agree right on point. So, yeah, no, you're you're spot on with that. Um, Do you think nowadays... In the world we're in, where everything is just you know headlines and clickbait and Twitterverse, uh, can we find good, strong leaders? Do you, do you think that's a dying, um, I guess not characteristic, but a, a dying quality of people? Because I find it hard to see a lot of the time. But I wonder if that's just maybe because of the internet and everything so much of it gets drowned out that you know the really good people don't necessarily come to the top all the time it's it's kind of hard to find them or few far between so i I think there are a couple different things there um i think right now you if i was to ask you about who great leaders are you're probably some people that you think of regardless of rank wherever they are so i still think that they exist Mm -hmm. um i but i do think that we live in a world that people are making the 
value judgment on do I want everything that comes with this mm. for my family? Okay. For my So it's not the, I think people want to lead if you want to make things better around you, make uh, really help the people that you're, who are like you're tasked with leading. I think that's important. I don't, I don't think that's gone away that everyone becomes so kind of Machiavellian that it is, you have a hundred percent of people thinking the ends justify the means and you are to, you be as cutthroat as you want. But I think for public facing positions, that's where the lack of decorum in our society. And I think the, the denigration of like really the social contract of how we actually connect with each other, deal with each other. Some people who I think would be great elected officials would be great public sector leaders might think, yeah, but I don't want, if I make a mistake or I make a decision that's this person doesn't like, they come yell at me and my wife when I'm walking down. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I, I think that's actually the biggest place that things have changed is in kind of the level of respect that we show each other, even if we disagree. And we can vehemently disagree, but as you were saying earlier, we're talking about how to get to a certain destination. But I think we lose the plot in terms of the destination when it goes into how do we go at attacking each other and what's going to be the most successful way to bring someone down or humiliate someone who's interested in trying to do a public service. And I think that part of forward-facing leadership, I do hope that there are still more people who want to put their name forward, whether it be to um, uh, be elected officials, whether they want to be to move up in our in our organization, that knowing that their job is going to require them to be more and more um, forward-facing. But as a society, we give each other less grace. Mm. Like we 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 forget that about the collective humanity that you can make mistakes or you can change your mind. Yes, that's a big and one. You, Yes, I can take new information and, oh my Lord, I didn't think about it from that perspective. Perhaps the world isn't as cut and dry and we don't give that grace for leaders to do that because it's, okay, well, you're a flip-flopper, yada, yada, yada. Then what would ever be my incentive to actually listen? Yeah. Well, and you know what? One thing is, I I know sometimes, uh, you know, the chief puts out videos or other, anyone at the executive level, people are very quick to jump on a certain word or or how something might've been said. But with that, I just think like, if I put a recording device on anybody, they're going to be saying stupid things all day. So they probably don't want to know what they, they themselves say. So yeah, it's given that grace for people to mess up, or maybe you just don't know the way, you know, someone intended to something to come out and it came out a different way. Um, one of the things I wanted to do, maybe just like a hard pivot, if we can, toward the DEI side of things, because this is a really interesting topic. And I think a lot of the meaning's been hijacked and people got so many different ways to look at it. Um, what is, do you, you know, what do you see that as in a policing context and how do you implement it? I want to say safely, but you know, uh, if you could kind of give listeners, what is your version of DEI and how should it be implemented in a policing world? And I'll say this is one particular view, but I will like my focus on diversity, especially and I'll also focus on diversity and inclusion. If we have time, we'll get to the equity portion. Mm-hmm. But diversity for me is your 
range of thinking, your background. There is also demographic diversity. So if we're talking about me being a Nigerian black man or someone being a woman or a member of, uh, uh, say, the LGBTQ2S plus community and also like experience. So whether like for me, I think about my experience and how this really mattered in a policing context was I worked in government. Mm -hmm. So over these last four years, as we're having discussions on how to navigate the politics within policing, I worked in politics. This is something that I tangibly bring to this floor. Yeah, I'm not a police officer, but I have police officers that work with me and they have their experience on how we should be navigating things. And we can actually talk those things out. Like, I think when we speak about diversity being strength, there's a part of that sentence that's committed that I think would probably help the conversation in terms of tension. Mm. There is also a tension with diversity. If I was working with a whole room of people that have my background and I got along with, boy, that would make us do things really fast. We'd be really efficient. But there might not be any new ideas coming in. Yeah. There might not be the um, real tension that would actually cause the group to grow. So there is a difficulty in diversity that I think we should acknowledge, but the intent is under that tension. That's where the strength happens. Yes. So like I'm a meathead. I, I think about time under tension when I'm bench pressing. I think about like that when working out and that's how muscles grow. That is how you get better, but you have to be skillful at navigating that. So for a police service, like we can speak about the community relations aspect of it. It's really important to have the support of your community. When you don't have the support of your community, it does actually have some real life, real impacts on the service, whether it be at the very local level of the, the kind of legitimacy at, at a stop yeah. or at an interaction or just walking through the mall in uniform or at the very high level as what we saw in terms of the defund movement. So those matter and they also do matter in terms of officer safety as well. Having that relationship, having that respect from the community, that two-way street really, really impacts the way you're able to do your job. But when we speak about diversity, especially the inclusion part, I don't think we talk enough personally about what that actually means. If we're working on a team together, you and I, I want you to be able to bring the best of yourself to that. All of your ideas feel psychologically safe that you can throw out an idea and you know, this might be a moonshot. And if it doesn't work, I'm not going to get canned for it yeah. or I'm not going to be revealed for it. Or, But if it does work, now we have something that we didn't have before because you weren't afraid to talk about it. And the way it works in my mind, within a police organization or any large organization is, I think we have things called status groups. Mm -hmm. So this has been, you probably had it in high school, university, elementary, there are in groups and there are out groups. And for me, it really doesn't matter the racial makeup of said in group or the racial makeup of said out group. If we are doing things in a way that we have, I have a whole bunch of people in my position of power 
that I have a whole bunch of people that I'm comfortable with, and I'm going to systematically block the people who aren't or the people who aren't in my kind of inner circle, mm-hmm. that is a very bad thing. That is not being inclusive. And yeah. we can, I think, on that, regardless of if I told you what that group was made out of, like in terms of the, the representation. So being inclusive and finding different ways to literally get the best out of the people that are next to you, the people who are above you in the org chart, below you in the org chart, is the actual job of leadership. And I don't want to continue to complicate it with the kind of the gotcha stuff that's been taking place or the, the really, really, really focusing on the evolution of language. Those things matter. But if we can get the basics of, I want you to feel comfortable, A, working with me, I want you to feel like you can be your best self working with me and I can too. That is how we get better as an organization. Yeah. And you know what? I think that you have a good point where we're talking about like, don't want to take the natural flow of people in and out of groups um, and, and take that natural movement of them away when we just put hard lines like, I need this percentage of this, you know, race, ethnicity, sex, whatever it is to be in this group. Now it makes it, it makes it awkward a lot of the time, but you also, um, that I think is where you lose that natural flow of that diversity coming in and out. I mean, it's, it's almost built right into the, the fabric of our society where we're, we do include people. And I, I get there's pockets where, you know, someone might not have grown up with any black people in their school, but just by natural interactions and curiosity, uh, you're going to come across those people in your life. And, you know, if, if the person's an ass, then okay, well, you know, that's people have a right to be like that. But I don't think we have to put, you know, hard lines on, you know, the, we have to have X amount of this in the organization or X amount in this unit. Um, a lot of the, I think a lot of the conversation has been hijacked in the sense that and I'll say even agency uh, taken away from people over their own careers where, you know, to a point where you get a female who gets a job in the organization, say in a promoted rank, people are very quick to jump on the narrative of, well, she only got it because she's female. And it's, it instantly delegitimizes that person, even if they did a ton of good work and did a ton of things to get there. So, as a you know the leader in the organization and working in the comm stuff, how do you kind of manage those? Uh, I guess those conversations that people might have or the narratives that they're put out there. Yeah, I mean, if someone is, and I do know that kind of stuff gets said. I know that stuff gets said about me. Like I'm a uh, yeah, like they talk about kind of the token person, yada yada yada. Yeah. But if someone is going to say that. I don't know if there's much, like if you're going to open your mouth and say that, there's much I can do for you in terms of applying energy. Mm. What I think about when it comes to that female who has been promoted into the rank is what that means in terms of motivation for others who may not have thought okay. that. So I'll give you a personal example for me. Like you grow up and like 
you see kind of in pop culture how people of color, especially black people and black men are depicted. And for me, not watching, it wasn't until really seeing Barack Obama mm. that I saw a black man suit on TV celebrated on a regular basis. Now, that doesn't mean because I hadn't seen that, that he should have been president. He earned being president. But it does find a way that once you see someone do it, then it becomes real. Yeah. And I think that kind of intrinsic motivator really serves a purpose. Now, when it comes to you're talking about a quota in a certain place, my focus is not on a certain amount in a certain place. It's on are we doing what we can to remove the barriers for people to get to that destination? So it's not that I'm going to just place you there. It is I'm making sure that if you are competing for it, that there is no artificial barrier in your way yeah. to do it. And on top of that, how can we also encourage people to try new things and give them support to do that while still making it a fair competition for everyone? Because I think everyone wants to be able to compete and achieve things and earn things off your own merit, because there's a reason I'm sure you don't have any of the participation ribbons that you got from elementary school. Track. <laughs> yeah. Don't home to show your parents that no, everything that really matters and you feel is earned as leaders. Let's make sure that we're just having people to the best of their ability, starting from the same starting line to run their race. Mm-hmm. And if you beat me, you beat me. And now I got to look at what do I got to do? to get to that finish line faster, but it's not that you're running the hundred meter dash and I'm running the 110 hurdles. Yeah. And I think that's the focus for anyone in terms of, and we're not really speaking about solely um, demographic diversity, but anyone in our organization, if you have an end that you want to meet, what are we doing to ensure that we're removing barriers, we're making fair competitions, and that we're not creating spaces that those who already are in the positions are only bringing those who they 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 care about along. And I will say, I have been very, very surprised and heartened to just hear anecdotal stories from folks talking about mentor, mentoring this woman or mentoring this man. And like people are doing that informally. So I think as an organization, we are doing some of these things. I think we need to step up in the mentorship program and that exchange of ideas, exchange of kind of cultures, even between sport and civilian. It will make you better in the long run, not only for your organization, but whatever you choose to do after that too, because this seems to be, this is an organization where after 25 years, especially depending on when you get on, you still have a whole career after that. Yeah. Why would you shut down the opportunity to get in as much information and experience from other people to only add that to your tool belt and then take that to whether it be your duties now or your duties in the future or really just kind of who you are as a person? Yeah. Well, and across your experiences, so even going back to Saskatchewan, uh, have you seen or can you give like some examples of uh, any sort of barriers or things that you have dealt with or you've seen others deal with? Because for me, I'm thinking, I, I get that there's racism out there. I get that there's a lot of bad people out there that will throw up blocks and, and you know maybe do certain things. But then when I hear, um, when we talk about like systemic racism and lots of people making apologies for systemic racism, I can get 
behind the historical context and making apologies. But when you know the RCMP uh, commissioner Lucky went in front of uh, House of Commons or whatever group it was she was saying it on, and she says, you know, we are a systemically racist organization. Like, well, what are you talking about, right? I'm thinking that. And then somebody asked, actually asked her, well, can you give us an example? Like, what do you, what do you mean? And then she just kind of bumbled around for a while. Um, I'm wondering, like, where does this exist right now? Because it, it's kind of just left out there like this boogeyman kind of hanging around. It's like, okay, but where is it? Or what are we talking about? No, that's a good question. And I, so I think I'll say racism does exist in our society. I think we, we can agree on that. Yeah. And I think leasing is no different that it will exist within pockets because we have human beings who come to policing. Yeah. But when we were having discuss, this discussion of how this kind of impacts lives, I don't know if you remember, but it must have been in 2020, and this was in Quebec, there was an Indigenous woman who kind of came to the hospital saying that she was experiencing pain. And my recollection was the nurses were I just assumed that she was drunk mm-hmm. and uh, she was a drunk Indigenous woman. And she was there, she put them on Facebook Live, and she was still trying to communicate about her pain. And no one took her seriously. And then that woman died. And we didn't really have a large conversation about kind of racism within healthcare when that happened. Like the focus was squarely on police. But there are aspects when you have power, your bias and your view towards certain groups of people does have an ability to impact lives, mm-hmm. whether it be lending at a bank, whether it be different educational outcomes in terms of ability to, in terms of, yeah, education. There are, this happens within our system. Now, we can't just throw our hands out and just say the entire system is racist, therefore we don't have to, or that's just what it is. No, there still also has to be, like within that conversation, individual agency, individual accountability to be able to make things better for yourself. Like for me, as kind of a black man or me in a leadership position. So I don't think we should be afraid to have the conversation, but I think definitely how it was interpreted was everyone in this system is overtly racist, which is a very, very different thing yeah. than what I'm speaking. And I, 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 I firmly don't believe that. And I don't think anyone with any actual sense would believe that. But back to what I was speaking about in terms of barriers, there are some things that we have within our system. Like even if you look at the Indian Act and being able to own land on reserve, being able to have some sort of capital when it comes to now I want to go to get a loan or mm-hmm. I want to start a business. Those kinds of things still exist within the system that definitely has some outcomes when it comes to edu- um, uh, financial outcomes um, down the road. There are things that we can look at, and I think there are people who are in positions of power that should be doing that, but I think the conversation gets diluted when it becomes this, everyone is racist, or no, no, we're not, and you're having this kind of argument, as opposed to... Yeah, at the extremes. 
at the extreme poles of the argument instead of what can we do to connect with each other better? What can we do to encourage inclusion? What can we do to actually bring down the temperature? Like everything has been on 11 <laughs> out of 10 for the last five years. Yeah. Bring down the temperature and get to know your neighbor. Get to be able to get to know and disagree with your neighbor, but you might still say hi when you see them in the driveway. And I think that's what we're losing in this, that there are collective humanity and willingness and ability to connect with one another is lost when everything is a 140 character soundbite that you're trying to dunk on each other and rage farm on Twitter. Meanwhile, this has some very real impacts on individuals who work within those systems. Yeah. Trying to make things better within that system. Yeah, and you know what? And applying that to the justice system and the job I do, uh, and I've had this conversation I hear a million times as well, just talking about these stats, like these very simple stats, superficial talking points all being applied in our world. And you see it in, uh, in like, say, uh, parole and probation, where I've had people in those offices tell me, we won't keep this person in jail because they're this race or whatever it might be. And my thought process is, but you're go, you're going to release them. They go back to their own community nine times out of 10. You're going to harm. <laughs> so it's, it's just cyclical. You're actually harming that community that you don't you know want people from in jail. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go back in that community again. So I'm there twice as much. I'm talking, you know, dealing with them twice as much twice as many street checks, twice as many arrests, or whatever it might equate yep. to. Uh, so that's one of the big things that I, I think that's one part of the system that is playing in the extreme right now where we need to bring it back. And I guess it's they're doing some things with that Bill C-75. Yeah, so, 48 replacing 75. 48 replacing it, yeah. No, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's very astute because you lose the plot when you, you, you start with the premise of an overrepresentation within the justice system. Okay, what can you do to make that better instead of just throwing the baby out with the bathwater? And I think that's what we ended up having, as well as the perfect storm of COVID where nobody was going to jail. But if you're thinking about in this very abstract academic way of by virtue of not having this individual who's a violent offender in jail, you're somehow that leads to reconciliation. Well, what about the indigenous women that they may go murder after? Yes. And what about the march, other marginalized people that they may actually interact with after we're serving them up? And I don't think we're doing um, the communities a good service when, for some people, jail is the answer. And in that jail, I hope that there, the, the expectation is there should be proper rehabilitation within those systems, but you should be separated from society and there should be accountability or kind of the, you should pay your debt to society for what you've done. For other people, we do need to get them into, whether it be proper addictions treatment, proper mental health treatment, and ensure that they can be closest or close to kind of their best self. But those are two very simple, uh, separate things. And just saying, we're throwing our hands up and saying, well, we're just not going to jail anyone or we're not going to move for any kind of accountability because some professor says so is... Mm-hmm. Uh, a little much yeah uh, and i think those are all solid points um maybe we'll just kind of we're getting to the end of our time i want to make sure you got time to talk about what you're currently involved in any projects on the go anything kind of coming down the pipeline uh eps or outside either one or both i know you're busy 
you know what? I'll talk about outside. So my wife and I and uh, another couple started uh, this not-for-profit. It's called the Reed Institute. And we started it in 2021. And it plays, uh, it's called Real Estate um, uh, Education and Thought Leadership. But it's a play on like uh, an investment REIT. Mm-hmm. And it was to get... Uh, it was to get uh, kids of color into commercial real estate, quite frankly. So it is a uh, case competition. It's an eight-week program in which, like, in Edmonton, we take them to our, uh, Rogers Arena. We take them all through the ICE District. Mm. Just get to really show kids that, and the youth and the scholars, that there is a whole set of careers here that uh, you might not have known about. Because, like, I lived in apartments growing up. I didn't know someone owned the apartment. We just kind of, you just live <laughs> yeah. there. Um, someone owned and managed this mall you just kind of show up to these things so showing them about kind of the diversity of jobs that exist within commercial real estate and then we break them into teams in which they get mentors from the u of a as well as mentors from different commercial firms that get to just meet so now they're building networking skills so over eight weeks they learn kind of financial literacy they learn how to public they they learn their public presentation skills because i don't know if they get that much in schools now with Schools kind of, yeah, I just don't know if they get that much in schools. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Dragon's Den style case competition that the winning team wins up to $10,000 in uh, kind of scholarships. So we've had kids for Syrian refugees a few years ago that have just won the last cohort. We're expanding to Calgary now. Um, we've had kids who had just moved from Tibet wow. who are, um, yeah, who were competing and English wasn't their first language. We have from our first two cohorts now, um, some that graduated university and now working commercial real estate, graduated high school, sorry, and now working commercial real estate at the firms that the, their mentors were, were working at. So that part, that kind of work really kind of warms my heart because like for me growing up, it was either be a doctor or a lawyer. You didn't really know. Yeah. You didn't really know about all the jobs there and I think it's just the coolest thing of just creating an opportunity for people to get to know each other and really practice that inclusion and see where things go. So even if they don't work in commercial real estate, I don't really care. But at the age of 16, 17, getting to just connect with adults for the adults getting with kind of what the next generation is and just having some fun and learning that is going to be taking up a lot of my time, but I, I I love it. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, make sure uh, I'll, Get you send that link over if you got a website or anything, because I'll be sure to put that up in the episode description. Um, yeah, and where can people follow you and your work? You can follow the at REIT Institute, R-E-E-T, um, and spelling of Institute. And then on social media, not really much on Twitter, but because it's a cesspool. Um, <laughs> it, I believe it is at C-O-O underscore O-K-E-R-E. And then I'm on LinkedIn. That seems to be the last bastion of sane conversations before yeah. the Twitter folks over. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for coming on today. Uh, I'll get links up for all those so people can take a look at your work and follow you. Um, yeah, thanks very much for coming on here. And uh, hang on the line for a second. I'll say bye offline. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, man. <laughs>